This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the digital industry. Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome back to Behind the Markets here in Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Joining the studio today by Lee Chen Ren, Director of Modern Alpha at Wisdom Tree. We're talking with Caesar Masri, who also was a graduate of the Wharton School. Always good to get Wharton grads on our on our show here at Wharton Business Radio. He leads the Emerging Markets Cross Asset Strategy Team for Goldman Sachs. Uh, he joined Goldman back in 2005. Uh, I believe has been there ever since. I should note our discussion is not tied to the offer of save investment products. And the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wizard Tree affiliates. Thanks for again joining us, Caesar. Here. Thank you very much again. Yep, been here since uh, 2005, and, and you know you're starting to get old when people say back in 2005. Back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I joined Wizardry back in 2005, so it's a very similar timing. Um, so, you know, w- w- give us your, when you think about the key drivers, you know, when and you're talking to clients who are thinking about allocating to emerging markets and you're doing cross-asset work, what are the key most important drivers that dictate sort of bullishness, bearishness for, for EM generally for you? So, yeah, I mean, there's obviously so many things that one can keep track of, um, uh, and it depends a little bit, you know, equities versus credit and, and currencies and so on. But, but, but of course, the, the ultimate driver is growth. And, you know, in the equities, we tend to think of earnings growth. In the macro markets, we think more of kind of broader, you know, broader GDP. And there's definitely a story about emerging markets and kind of the domestic growth stories and so on. But, you know, the reality of the, the, the matter is whenever you think about allocation, whenever you think about asset markets, I mean, you have to start with the U.S., uh, not just because it's the largest economy and, and, and clearly has spillover effects fundamentally, but from a sort of allocation or asset management perspective, right, a lot of the uh, AUM, a lot of the assets under management in the world are in this country, in the United States, and people allocate uh, in and out of the riskier assets as a function of what's going on domestically here. So it's really the, 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 the duality of the domestic uh, fundamentals in emerging markets, but then also taking into account the, the global context. Yeah, and so the certainly they look at the U.S. and then they also seem to be for emerging markets. Also look around China. Is that is is the is the developments in China as important as the U.S. or is it is it just now number two? Uh, it's a fair. I mean, you know, the, the 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 nerd in me, you know, likes to answer those questions by looking at uh, fancy regressions and so on. And, and actually, you still do find that the that the U.S. From a uh, you know correlation, uh, from a day-to-day um, you know asset uh, movement perspective, still does drive things. But surely, as you as you think more strategically, six months, twelve months, you know, multi-year horizon. Yeah, absolutely. China is the largest um, uh, economy in the EM world, second largest in the world. And again, if you're if we're talking equities uh, from a benchmark perspective, you know, MSCI EM being the most uh, prominent one for for equities, China is one third of that benchmark. So, I mean. 
you know, there are about 25 countries in that benchmark. So it really, you know, dominates. Again, it's a little bit less true if you look at other asset classes, but uh, uh, for equities, China absolutely is the dominant uh, force. And so what's your, your big picture view on, on China growth, China earnings growth? How's the, the trade situation impacting them? I mean, do we need a trade deal for China to be bullish or what's, what's the story? Yeah, well, the, again, this is this is a you know the, the China topic one can spend you know hours uh, discussing, but to really distill it um, uh, uh, down, um, again, I, 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 my sort of quirky remark at the very beginning was I think there's a, a dislocation between if we're talking three month views versus you know let's say twelve or longer, and in the short term, I think there's a, a, a number of things to be positive about. One is just simply if you're a data watcher, um, some of the PMI type data has improved in China specifically. It's actually been a little bit more of a mixed bag, uh, but there are signs that policy is easing on the credit side, on the kind of the domestic channel. I can talk about that a little bit, but I think that's actually very important and less discussed in the you know the broader um, uh, discussions about global macro and about China. But obviously, the trade you know the, the trade deal is critically important. The reason why. I specifically, you know, maybe don't put less weight, but tend to think about it less is simply it's very difficult to quantify. And so, of course, there's, you know, some positivity around phase one and then a number of sort of game theory discussions one can have that, you know, why why do we even have a phase one? Is it because the U.S. economy started to show some weakness? So perhaps that persuaded, you know, the, the U.S. administration to negotiate a little bit more. Is there a timing about the election? I mean, there's all these, you know, side discussions one might one might have. But nevertheless, you do have some sort of agreement in place. People are looking for the, you know, the APEC summit um, in a couple of weeks' time as perhaps a way of catalyzing that, getting an agreement in principle and so on. But that's that's I think enough positivity that one can one can, can express a positive view on on, on, on risk assets uh, for for a few months. I think as we talk more strategically I mean, if you really think about, you know, the next number of years, I think it's it's not controversial to say there's the U.S. and China, the number one and number two economies in the world, and you know, they're they're, uh, you know, no one wants to say enemies, but there there's there's some tensions and there's competition, and I think you know there'll be continued uh, arenas of that, uh, you know, let's call it a conflict or tensions, whatever word you want to use. Uh, but there'll be, there'll be you know, continued manifestations of this in various, in various forms. Um, so so I, I, I don't think it's easy to paint a picture where things all of a sudden get very friendly and, you know, we're off to the races for, for a number of years. I, I, I think that's a, a very narrow path. When you think about within emerging markets, if you're you know, suggesting to clients to favor certain countries or, or really be stay away from certain countries, what is there themes or, or, or factors that you're, you're looking at for where you would be suggesting there's opportunities? Sure. So I think in the again, in the short term, you know, What's the most, uh, apart from just, uh, you know, the China discussion, which, of course, is, is, is extremely important, to me, one of the most interesting dynamics that has changed in emerging markets in the last couple of years is basically the, the um, uh, sort of conducting of central bank policy. And I'm sure every, all, the, you know, uh, all the listeners are acutely aware of the change we've had in the Fed in terms of going from, you know, raising interest rates to now cutting, being more accommodative. And, you know, pe- people should be aware that really over the last even 20 years, 30 years, really for a long time, emerging market central banks basically had to follow the Fed for a variety of reasons, pegged currencies, um, uh, sort of uh, even when they didn't have pegged currencies and you didn't want to see you know, big weaknesses in the currency if you weren't keeping track uh, with the Fed in terms of interest rates and you'd get big inflation uh, if your currencies weaken and so on. 
um, the point is that dynamic has has really uh, broken down, and now we're seeing EM central banks being able to cut much more aggressively. And again, there are a variety of reasons for that. You know, uh, institutional quality, inflation anchoring, and so on. But the point of what I'm saying, you know, get to get to your question is, I think very tactically the type of emerging market that we really uh, would express positive views on in terms of the markets are the places where central banks can cut rates uh, quite aggressively and still can cut rates from here. So a few markets like Brazil, like Mexico, like Russia, perhaps Indonesia, of some of these markets which are a little bit out of the scope of you know, the trade war, uh, as it were, um, I, I think those are kind of the, the, the interesting stories to focus on. And the the opposite, the people you think can't cut rates because of either the focus or too high inflation, things that they can't do. What's who's the the prime targets? <laughs> the, the, well, the, the sort of the irony there is it's very very difficult to find any any market where there's a you know a um, a rough inflation story, basically where inflation is very high. Um, I mean, maybe Turkey and Argentina, which I'm sure have been in the discussion. You know, when, when people think about emerging markets and the places that have been extremely volatile, but perhaps for other reasons, um, I'd put those. As you know, kind of the you know, volatile or worrisome. But, but, but actually, the, the more, more, more fundamentally, I think the places to be a little bit worried about are places where the fiscal deficit in emerging markets are you know, somewhat stretched. Um, so South Africa uh, comes to mind as a country where that is a pretty fragile um, environment. And you know, in, in, in markets, one can think about, okay, what's the most likely thing to happen? And where, you know, what are the attractive investment opportunities? But really, what we're talking about is risk management. And for me, it just seems like, you know, the global cycle is quite stretched. Uh, you know, the U.S. has been in expansion mode for quite a long time. And you really want to be cautious of places that would be vulnerable if there were a recession. And that's obviously a loaded word, the R word, you know, recession. Um, and it's not about calling that recession. It's very difficult to call these things precisely. But you want to be aware of where the risk reward, of, you know, where the sort of the left tail, the, the, you know, the big drawdowns are going to be most painful in the next recession. And I think emerging markets that have weak fiscal balances that will not have the ability to act counter-cyclically, again, South Africa comes to mind as one of those, um, would be places I'd be uncomfortable um, um, investing. Now, you talk about the, the key driver for emerging markets is always growth. And you know we think about the long-term growth stories. You know Why do you like EM generally? Well, they tend to have younger populations, better growth profiles. And maybe India symbolizes that the best. Now, they had an election. Modi came in earlier this year. Um, in U.S. dollar terms, India has not been all that exciting. It's been one of the weaker EM countries. What's your big picture, long-term view, short-term view on, on India there? Yeah, India um, uh, does have, you know, the favorable demographics. Um, there's obviously another, you know, sort of strategic uh, sort of story there, for, you know, being in Asia, you know, a quite large economy in Asia and a democracy and so on. It just seems like in the current environment of geopolitics and tensions, it's a natural ally, perhaps, of the U.S. So one story that was a little bit under the radar screen uh, from, let's say, a, a month or so ago uh, when, when, when Modi came to visit um, uh, the U.S. There was a, a, a deal uh, struck, didn't get a lot of press, of basically, you know, further tax incentives for the U.S. to, uh, you know, build factories or have a, 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 a sort of joint agreements, um, joint ventures with Indian corporates and, you know, kind of have more favorable trading terms. I think those types of trade deals are more digestible or acceptable in the current environment rather than with, a, you know, let's say a China, for example. So I think that's another reason to sort of think that uh, over the medium term, there's going to be 
less uh, 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 tensions and so on, which is, of course, what everyone's been so obsessed about, you know, politics in markets the last, uh, the last um, um, couple of years. You, you did mention that India, you know, has been an underperformer. Sure. Um, but that's coming from a very strong run uh, over the last uh, few years. And so the equities in particular were uh, quite expensive coming into this year. If I recall, you know, the Nifty was trading at something about like 18 or 18 and a half times earnings, which is a very elevated, you know, price earnings ratio uh, for any market, uh, India, especially given how it usually trades more, more mid-teens. Um, but so the way I think about India is it's a, it's, a, it's a quality story. It's one of the few areas where they're actually able to loosen the fiscal channel. So, for example, there was a big uh, corporate tax cut announced a month ago. Um, they have the ability to do that. I don't think many other EMs have that fiscal space. Um, and so that, of course, would, would, would help promote growth in the, in the short run. So we'd be pretty uh, positive on there. And then, and then the last thing. And again, sorry to, to, to go on and on, but I love you know talking about this stuff. Is you know India's a big oil importer, and you know everyone could have an oil view. It's you know like everything, it's difficult to predict. But I would say something very interesting that has happened in the market um, around oil prices, around the the supply disruption, which again came up in the conversation earlier, is you didn't see a big uh, reaction in the oil market, particularly in the back end of the curve, meaning sort of the oil prices that are dated, you know, several months or even a year out. And I think the the way oil sort of behaves nowadays with this idea that shale can turn on relatively quickly is just you're, you're unlikely to see big oil spikes like we've seen in the past around supply shocks. And for the importers of the world, like India, that probably, you know, gives them a, a less of an external vulnerability. And so, again, that to me, that sounds like a, like a positive investment story over the medium to long term. Very good. We're talking with Caesar Masri, a EM portfolio strategist, cross asset research for Goldman Sachs, and it looks like Lee Chen wants to jump here. Hi, with the question. Uh, Caesar. Um, very interesting. You mentioned that in the short term is uh, you know uh, positive, but in next year uh, or, or potentially longer term, you you see some uh, negative wins. Um, I I do want to tie that uh, into you know we have a um, ex state owned strategy, which is essentially we still you know. We, our views on state-owned companies is a little bit different from ex state owned for the emerging market. Like, What's your view and how to tie that into your uh, risk uh, in, in the little bit longer term? Yeah, well, of course, I'd be curious, uh, curious review. I bet I could guess it, but uh, I'd be curious. Um, you know, I, I do think, it, it, so on the, along that dimension of state-owned versus, you know, private or so on, you know, it does seem pretty clear to me that um, as a long-term investor, you want to be outside of the state-owned enterprise um, uh, uh, arena um, yeah, for a number of reasons, you know, better, uh, better management, probably better margin control, um, maybe more innovation and so on. Um, so I would, I would, I would. Uh, I think that's been a trend for some time, but but I but I would expect that that trend to continue. And I think it's also worth noting that you know emerging markets of yesteryear are not the emerging markets of today. And a nice way of showing that is, you know, and again I refer to MSCI EM, you know, the the major uh, index for emerging market equities. Um, that that index used to be something like 48 or 46 percent. I forget the exact figure. Uh, roughly half in commodity uh, companies. Companies in terms of market value. That's from like 2008, um, uh, around that, that figure. Today, that number is 14. 
uh, 1.4%, meaning quite similar to the, the share that's in the developed market world. And so, you know, people who think they're buying emerging markets and buying kind of the old economy stuff, a lot of that used to be state-run and so on. That's just not the way uh, EMs are in reality today. So that, to me, is a very positive development, more at the micro level um, compared to kind of the demographic arguments and some of the macro um, uh, discussions that one that might have about emerging markets. And, and I think that's a very positive thing. Um, so I would, I would continue to focus on those private companies um, that are now becoming a larger share of the, of the aggregate pie for EM. Yeah, I think that, you know, that part of our big picture view, I do think there's a sector shift that also happens. It's exact same as what you're just talking about, that the state-owned tends to be large banks, large energy. The non-state-owned tilts you to the, the tech, the, the consumer-oriented type companies. And certainly, you know, big tech has been dominating everywhere, just like it has in the U.S. It's dominating in China. And, and so you get some of that element of that. So part of it's a, a tactical view on that. Um, you know, trying to stay controlled and constrained on that. But I think, you know, big picture, you would think China tech is going to have better growth than China banks. And the question is, is it worth the premium multiples versus the five PE distressed China banks? Exactly. I think that's that's uh, and that is the key question. I think over the long term, as you said, if growth dominates, you you, you stick to kind of the growth stories. I, I I would say you know there's 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 never anything that you know there, there's always rotation in markets. Let's put it that way. And the reason why I'm I'm a little bit hesitant to say yeah now's the absolute time to jump in is you know going back to what you guys were referring to in the beginning of the discussion. You know, okay, if you have a little bit more of some concern just about call it volatility, call it slower growth. Actually, state-owned uh, enterprises tend to have preferential funding, you know, through some maybe government or some sort of government um, assistance. And so in really rough times, they tend to kind of, you know, perform a little bit better. And that's, of course, where the, the stocks that are trading at very lofty valuations can, can, can correct pretty, pretty quickly. Again, that's, uh, it's like, let's say, you know, you don't want to be a two-handed uh, strategist and say, oh, well, this or that could happen. But the way I think about it, of course, is, you know, the modal outcome, the, the outcome we expect to happen is that the, you know, economy continues to, to grow. We still think China grows 6% or thereabouts um, next year, and things are stable, and so you stick to those stories. But in terms of the distribution of risks, we think they're much more tilted to the left side than the right side. That is to say, we don't see an environment next year that will be very, very attractive for equity returns, but we do see a higher probability of an environment that might be quite more negative uh, for equity returns. And so that, you know, there's a number of hedging strategies that we can work with clients on and so on. But but, but I think that distribution is extremely important to keep in mind. So you've been producing a publication on this sort of macro trader where you have a number of different themes in the state-owned versus non-state-owned was one of the themes. What's the, how do you see clients using this macro equity report and lens? Um, Are people trading baskets? You see more of the active managers trying to execute themes and factors like you do really that that we see you know in the ETF world even though we can't talk specific ETFs you know you, you see themes going towards ETF execution and then the, the your active followers are, are doing similar things yeah so i i wouldn't comment too much on you know the nature of the business specifically, but I would say you know at the heart of your question, um, firstly, like, you know maybe an obvious thing to say is look, fixed income investors are looking more at equities in general. I think that's a natural consequence of there are low yields everywhere in the world. I'm sure you've seen a number of 
you know, those stats about what what, pers- what, what the, the dollar amount of outstanding bonds that are, you know, trading at negative yield. So there's sort of a natural uh, convergence or a con- uh, conversion, I should say, of fixed income investors looking at equities and fixed income investors are generally macro minded. They're not yeah. thinking about individual companies per se. And so translating how to think about equities in a macro context has been, you know, I think invaluable to those investors. They absolutely do trade those things uh, directly. And so that, that can be in a variety of product forms. Um, uh, again, that's a little bit out of my purview as I'm a more the research guy, but, but you know, call it ETF, call it whatever you want, uh, you know, uh, swaps, baskets, etc. cetera. Uh, there, there absolutely is that. But then we've also found that, um, you know, the traditional bottom-up stock picker who is, you know, trying to outperform their benchmark thinks about individual company dynamics and where there's values and where, the, you know, the management company might be particularly strong, but they can use these macro equity screens, as we call them, which do break down to individual stocks and sort of get a better sense for, well, what are the macro uh, exposures that are embedded in my portfolio. That's another sort of critical, um, uh, you know, use that we, we find, and, and and that relates to a lot of the discussions about you know smart beta, quant, you know, factors, and so on. It's a nice middle ground to kind of relate one audience to the other. And what have you found to be the macro factors that work for EM? Well, uh, in a way, in a, so the, the state-owned enterprises is an interesting one. Um, and when someone says what, what works, that makes it sound like, you know... It's all the time, be, can, forever. Yeah, exactly, all the time. And so, you know, the way, I, the way I think about it is, you know, there's there's a certain type of theme and, or one should say, you know, a risk or factor that you need to be aware of at various times in the cycle. I've, I've already sort of mentioned that, you know, our view is that you're basically late in the cycle. And so for us, it's less about chasing those cyclical names and more more looking at places where margins have not kind of reached the late cycle, where margins, uh, corporate profit margins I'm referring to specifically, are relatively low versus a company's own history. And where if growth sort of muddles through, there's still some upside, you know, margin expansion. That, that's to me what will, you know, drive better earnings growth at this late part of the cycle. And so that would be one strategy we would be focused on in particular. And then the other one, you know, for a very similar reason I just mentioned about uh, low interest rates. Again, this is not a strategy you'd necessarily employ all the time, but in the current environment of low yields and also low growth, I think stocks that pay a high and reliable dividend is, is also a very good strategy. Yeah. Now, do you, one of the things, you know, we also have indexes focused on that part of the market, too. Um, I noticed that, you know, they just rebounced, actually, in October. And so there's a lot, you know, right now where you're getting some double-digit yields. You go to those Russian energy companies, you get a lot of the materials. So your point on what the market used to look like back in 08, it almost looked a high dividend index today, I think, looks like the cap-weighted index back in 08. I mean, it's it's almost, a, you know, it's a, it's a heavy amount Russia, heavy amount commodities, energy materials less you know you know the the non-dividend pairs are those tech companies so you don't you don't get that as much yeah yeah exactly and uh you know again it's it's um in a low yield world, you're going to be searching for yield in a variety um, of ways, and um, and uh, you know dividend yield is also a little bit representative valuation, so it tends to be relatively uh, cheap or inexpensive yeah. stocks where the dividend yields are high. So I think there's a little bit of defensive nature, uh, and again, I think that makes a, a lot of sense at this point in the cycle as a as a significant weight of uh, of someone's portfolio. Do you think those? What do you, do you have any particular view on these Russian companies? I mean, you are getting in aggregate the high dividend index that I that I 
track is single digit PEs, like nine PE and and five six percent dividends. Does do you you know? And some of these Russian companies are double digit ten percent plus dividends. Do you think those are sustainable? Like, how do you think about a lot of them are, are energy tied? Yeah. So we we. Um I mean, maybe as a rule of thumb, uh, tend to find you know stocks that tend to trade above a 10% dividend yield. I think it just in general it tends to be the market signal that it's it's a little bit um, skeptical that that dividend will actually be paid. And the market's been pretty good historically at, um, at at predicting that. Frankly, I do less you know sort of work at the at the stock level. But about Russia in particular, I'd say a couple things. One being that you know from a pure macro perspective, the data look pretty good. Uh, it's one of the economies where we think there's more room to run. Growth has been picking up. Central Bank has been pretty uh, hawkish until recently. Um, and so, again, I think there's some, some room for domestic policy to, to sort of help growth along the way. And obviously, that eventually will filter down to companies and their ability to pay to pay dividends. And then I, I actually would go back to another you know point that I made earlier about oil markets, where you know as much as supply might be disrupted and that might not lead to oil spikes, you know, I think there is you know, um, to, to, to put it plainly, you know, when there's supply disruptions in the Middle East, it, I would, you know, being a guessing person, right, think that there's less likelihood that Europe in particular, and perhaps the U.S. as well as an ally of Europe, would really want to pressure the Russians in terms of sanctions and, and in politics. Um, frankly, Europe needs, needs oil and I think wants to kind of play friendly with Russia. And, you know, I, I don't think, again, it's controversial to say one of the reasons why Russian assets in general, specifically the bond market, but also equities earlier this year really underperformed is because many European and also American investors basically didn't want to uh, invest in Russia ahead of what you know could be perceived to be a strong uh, sanction risk. I think that risk premium is coming out. Uh, that's why I think some of those dividend yields are quite high or valuation metrics are quite low, let's say, and, uh, and I'd be more comfortable uh, you know, basically buying those companies. Any view on on the currency side? So I know you do some some tracking and and especially how emerging markets trades with the the China currency, um, and that's been a big driver of a lot of things. Any any views on EM currency generally? Yeah. So look, I mean, the dollar is of course extremely important as a as a well. Uh, uh, let's say it this way: the dollar uh, is extremely correlated. Uh, with emerging market performance. And I think there's too much focus on the dollar as a driver of things, uh, as opposed to the dollar as a reflection of things. And so what I mean by that, again, going to the magic word of growth, you know, the dollar pretty much has traded with a growth differential. So, you know, the fact that the U.S. economy, not in terms of, you know, the, the, the rate of growth, we're not growing faster than the emerging world, but the emerging world has been slowing towards the U.S. Uh, growth rate, you know, over the last few years. And I think that has created a uh, stronger dollar environment in general. I view those things as correlated, not, um, not the dollar kind of being the causal, the causal factor um, um, there. I, I, we don't have a very strong view here um, in the dollar. We sort of think it'll be a little bit uh, sort of flat to year end. Um, and again, in part because we sort of see both the U.S. economy and the emerging world growing a little bit better over the next few months. So again, that sort of differential doesn't really change for us um, over the near term. I think the very interesting side on currencies is the renminbi, is the, is the Chinese currency. And, you know, moving the sort of political discussion to the side about, you know, negotiating of certain levels, I think what is is extremely important to, to note is the renminbi you know when it moves you know, uh, like a lot in any given day like market participants really focus on it 
But I think we've lost sight of you know, the longer-term trend. And the renminbi has weakened significantly over the last 18 months. You know, versus the dollar, it's something like 12 or 14 percent. Um, now it's you know, tightened a little bit in the last couple of days. And that basically, if you just think about tariffs as being a one-off event, I mean, that basically offsets a lot of the cost differential of, of tariffs. And so you know, I think sometimes we, we, we don't appreciate that. It, you know, the, the whole trade war is more about the uncertainty aspect, less about you know, what's actually uh, been, been done. And then the last thing, without rambling too much, you know, is that whenever someone says currencies, there's the growth differential I mentioned, but also rate differential. And I sort of made the point earlier, but Chinese rates, interest rates, are much higher than they are in the U.S. And I think China has a lot more room uh, to cut rates over the long term. And probably that puts you know, some depreciation pressure on the renminbi over the long run. And I think, by the way, that's not a bad thing. So uh, you know, the, final, the final point there is, in the emerging world, we all think, in, when I say emerging world, in emerging markets, we tend to think weaker currencies are bad because, again, they've been correlated. That's when, risk, when currencies weaken, you know, equities go down and so on. If you're a European or a Japanese, right, you're used to a weaker currency being a stronger market. We've we got to wrap up. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. You can follow us on, on Twitter, XM Business, our new handle. Next week, we'll be live at noon Eastern. Thanks to our producer, Patty Hall, sound engineer, Dion Simpkins. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. 